1: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Devil is on his way. Devil is on his way. Devil is on his way, mother fucker, the devil gonna make you pay. Fall to your knees, devil is on his way. Fall to your knees, devil gonna make you pay. Fall to your knees, devil is
0: on his way. On his... Hey guys, welcome back to Mountain Murders. I'm Heather. And I'm Dylan.
1: How are you, Dylan?
0: I am fresh back from Columbia, South Carolina.
1: You were in the Cackalack? I the, was the kakalak of the South this weekend.
0: Yes, I was.
1: How it, was that?
0: It was. uh It was really great. We went and saw Alabama, and they still got it, even though they're ten thousand years old. They still have the panache.
1: Don't be ageist.
0: I'm not being ageist. They were great. They were great. So that was exciting. And then we come out, and it's pouring snow in Columbia.
1: <laughs> we thought we escaped the <laughs> snow, but we did not.
0: So that was weird.
1: It was strange to see all the palmetto trees with snow falling, right?
0: Yeah, like a heavy snow.
1: Yeah. I thought we might get stuck. Yeah. An extra day or something. Fortunately, it all melted.
0: And then the next day, I had one of the pivotal moments of my life occur.
1: When you were day drinking?
0: Well, we were day drinking, but you also took me to the Hootie and the Blowfish Memorial Sculpture. The
1: monument? Yes. To the, apparently the greatest band South Carolina has ever produced.
0: It's true.
1: (laughs) And then you sat in the car and sang Hold My Hand.
0: I did. I I gave you a rendition of Hootie, um, a personalized version. You did. And uh, I think I've seen just one little tear escape your eye.
1: I had no idea there was even a Hootie and the Blowfish monument in Columbia. I'm so happy we discovered this.
0: Oh, I said memorial like Hootie's no longer with us.
1: Oh, Darius is singing all about that wagon wheel.
0: Yeah, he's all up on that wagon wheel. <laughs> no, so we enjoyed our time in Columbia. It's a great town. And now we're back in the studio.
1: And ready for some mountain
0: murders. Oh my gosh.
1: Before we get started, Dylan, I have a very interesting news article to discuss. Now, this comes to us from People's True Crime section.
0: They have the best stories.
1: For almost 35 years, Joyce Watkins insisted she never harmed her four-year-old great-niece, who died, um, according to jurors who found Watkins and her boyfriend guilty, as a victim of murder and aggravated rape. Now, this month, a judge agreed with Watkins, finally exonerating her and Charlie Dunn of the crimes that caused both to be locked away in prison for 27 years.
0: On horrible charges.
1: Now, Joyce, 74 years old now, finally got the charges dismissed, according to a news release from the Tennessee Innocence Project. She said, quote, I'm just happy to be out of this mess, which cost me half of my life for nothing, but I'll get over it. I thank God for me being able to do this. Now, Charlie Dunn, who died in prison some years ago, I believe in 2015, never wavered in his innocence. What happened what happened was, Dylan, Watkins had taken this little girl to a hospital on June 27th of 1987, the morning after she and her boyfriend Dunn picked the child up at the home of another relative in Kentucky, and the girl died the next day. Emergency room doctors determined that the girl had suffered from severe vaginal injuries and head trauma. There was a 45-page report by the Conviction Review Unit of the Nashville District Attorney's Office. A medical examiner later testified at trial that the injuries must have occurred during the nine-hour window that the child was with Watkins and Dunn.
0: Oh, wow. That's some damning testimony.
1: They were convicted in 1988 and sentenced to life in prison for the murder concurrent with a 60-year sentence for aggravated rape. Dunn did die behind bars. As I mentioned, it was 2015. And later that year, Watkins was granted parole and released. But she still bore the burden of being a convicted killer who was required to register as a state uh, like sex offender.
0: Well, yeah, those, those are the type of accusations that um, even if you're found innocent later, you know, um, they ruin they ruin your life. And, and of course, we always want to err on the side of the victims in these types of instances. But, uh, yeah, those are horrible charges, and people just don't let that go.
1: Well, about a year ago, Wat- Watkins contacted the Tennessee Innocence Project, And they said that the case against her didn't make any sense from the start. Joyce and Charlie were in their 40s. They had full-time jobs. They'd never been in any kind of trouble before. And then when you actually meet Joyce, you're like, there's just no way. And their families never thought they did this. The girl's mother, the little girl had actually been living with a relative in Kentucky for about two months before Watkins and Dunn picked her up. The mother always believed that Joyce was innocent. And the jury had their hands tied. They hear from a medical examiner who says that these injuries must have happened during this window of time, which would be when she was with Joyce and Charlie. But they're just dead wrong, according to the Innocence Project.
0: Yeah, I don't know how you could tell exactly when injuries happen. I mean, I'm sure you can tell if it's been a you know a day or two, but I, I don't th- I don't know how you get it down to that narrow of small of a window.
1: Yeah, so about two months before the girl died, she had been the subject of abuse allegations in the home where Watkins and Dunn had picked her up. But a child welfare worker who responded had accepted the relative's explanation of the alleged physical abuse as playground injuries and closed the investigation. So when they start digging in deeper, they realize that... There's like all this um, alleged evidence that has been withheld. There was a destruction of evidence favorable to Watkins and Dunn. They showed that the coroner's claims about when those injuries occurred was bad science, faulty testimony by a later discredited medical examiner. This is really frightening. I mean, this could happen to any of us. You think you're doing a good deed agreeing to babysit, something like that, right? They go pick up this niece, this great niece. She's been clearly abused while she was in this other household. You take her. Straight take her, to the and hospital. And then you're charged like you did it? I mean, this is scary because really this could happen to just about any of us.
0: Well, it's true. And I'm surprised that this, uh, all these problems with the trial and evidence weren't brought up long before, long ago, you know, in one of their appellate cases or something like that. Because it doesn't seem like it was uh, too hard to uncover.
1: Well, and just to think that all the time that Ms. Watkins and Mr. Dunn lost together, he passed away in prison, never able to have his dignity restored, his name cleared. Labeled a child rapist. To witness the day that his name was cleared. And then, of course, you've got this poor child. They were not with the child, so we don't really know what happens tragically. But this poor child has passed away, and then these two innocent folks lost half their lives in prison.
0: That's crazy.
1: But I am glad to see that the Tennessee Innocence Project was able to get her name cleared.
0: And his name, even uh, post-mortem, I guess, posthumously. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, wow.
1: I thought that was a... A pretty interesting piece of uh, true crime news.
0: Yeah, it's sad, but I'm glad that, um, you know, she's finally being recognized as innocent and that maybe uh, she can move on with what's left of her life. What a sad story.
1: It is very sad. A and poor little girl. Yeah, right? I mean, she's four years old.
0: I just, I just don't know what kind of monster can do this to children. It just blows my mind.
1: And today's case comes to you from tennessee dylan
0: good old tennessee
1: are you ready to get into today's story
0: let's dive in
1: from memphis tennessee comes the case of alma feed aka vance avenue alma oh wow alma heron was born in mississippi in 1895 and grew up dirt poor she arrived in memphis with her mother ruby who was also known as nettie two sisters and a brother, sometime around 1916. By now, her father, M.W. Heron was out of the picture, and the family had no means of support. Nettie worked at the American Snuff Company, but her income wasn't enough to sustain this large family. There's five of them trying to survive on her income.
0: Yeah, I'd say it was a meager wage there, the American Snuff Company.
1: Alma's best asset was her good looks. So the 16-year-old, she was shapely, pretty, and it didn't hurt that she enjoyed the company of gentlemen. Oh, wow. She soon gravitated towards Vance Avenue, the thoroughfare at the edge of Memphis's red light district that would provide her with this infamous nickname. After hanging out in the area for a bit, Alma realized she could make money. Uh, Alma asked about $2 a time for her services, but usually she'd settle for less than that because, after all, her family needed to eat. At the time, Trix would pay between $1 to $2 to the sex workers in Memphis's red light district. But the sex work wasn't only out of necessity. Oh, wow. It seems that maybe Alma kind of liked being a sex worker.
0: So she kind of leaned into it.
1: Let's talk a little bit about Memphis in the early 20th century. It was a cotton producer with the world's largest spot cotton market and hardwood lumber market. It attracted workers from rural areas beginning at the turn of the century and for the next 50 years saw its population quadruple. The city was known to tolerate a red light district, which was located in the lower end of the city near the railroad. Some referred to this area as the Memphis Tenderloin. It was dubbed that by writer Lucian Priest. Now, it is my understanding that Vance is like a lengthy road that runs through the city. And in the 1900s, some of that was lined with these beautiful Victorian houses. But then you creep on down, find yourself in a red light district.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of areas had these uh, known parts of town where these types of activities carried on.
1: In my research, Dylan looks like sex work really took off before the Civil War in the city of Memphis. And by the late 1800s, merchants, businessmen, and law enforcement began realizing the brothels were a mainstay of the city landscape, stopped fighting against it, and just sort of, you know, turned a blind eye and or kind of allowed these vices, if you will, to take place in this red light district. You had the booze, Card games, gambling, and the ladies of the evening.
0: And so they had this uh, uh, incredible growth over fifty years—a uh, town of sorts. And, and these types of activities all always follow. The when you have this growth, you have uh, uh, workers pouring into the area. They have extra money in their pocket because there's a lot of work available, and it's only natural to want to gamble and get the company of a lady.
1: To to give in to the vices of the world. <laughs> yes. Many of the madams and brothel owners became wealthy women about town. So it actually did provide um, a decent income to these women. And if you were lucky enough, I guess, to find yourself being in charge, running one of these brothels or body houses, you could be very, very wealthy.
0: Yeah, oftentimes these women started out as sex workers and they just have an entrepreneurial mind or they think a certain way and they end up on top. And they figure out they can just open their own house, have a few girls, their own stable, if you will, and uh, then end up making a ton of money.
1: Alma seems to have enjoyed her vocation as a sex worker, Dylan. She was addicted to the streets, as they say.
0: I've lived that life.
1: As a sex worker on the streets?
0: I've just been addicted to the streets.
1: Okay, Well, it wasn't hard work, and it paid way more than she would have earned toiling away in a factory or as a domestic worker, like many of the uneducated, unskilled women at the time. But she wasn't um, opposed to leaving the lifestyle behind. When one of her regulars asked her to marry him in 1917, Alma agreed. Her new husband was Halpin Cox. He ran a dice table at a gaming house in um, an area or a, called Gayese Avenue, or Gayese Avenue, someone will correct me. Close to Alma's regular stomping grounds. However, Alma soon became disenfranchised with married life.
0: Because the streets were calling her name. They
1: say, Dylan, you can't make a whole housewife. Ah, and you can't take her off the streets either. Her husband worked all night and slept all day. Marital bliss isn't always in the cards between a gambler and a hooker.
0: Wow, I like that. Did you come up with that? What do you think? Yeah,
1: <laughs> marital nice. bliss can't can't always have it with these with these types, right? So
0: she's she's married and kind of in a, a normal life, quote unquote. But she's also married to a man who runs a dice game. Yes. So she's still kind of connected to this uh, similar activities, and, and you know, he he works all night, sleeps all day. Probably gets, you know, all kinds of fights and strange things going on there where he runs his card game. So she's not completely left the streets.
1: Well, and it sounds like, you know, Alma might love the nightlife and like to boogie. Right. So when hubby's away working at night, she's left all alone. That's no fun.
0: Just want to swap that debit card
1: neglected desperate for companionship she started spending time with roy calvert a 24 year old railroad worker from arkansas the couple soon eloped across the mississippi and alma returned a few months later to divorce halpin cox alma then moved to little rock with calvert and married him there again in 1918 this would not be a happy union roy calvert was an alcoholic and he and Alma were constantly at each other's throats. During one of their many arguments in 1919, Alma picked up a gun and shot Roy. Wow. At the trial, she insisted she had been in fear of her life and had acted in self-defense. The jury was sympathetic to her, returning a verdict of justifiable homicide. The young widow, at just the tender age of 19, returned to Memphis and back to her old vocation.
0: So before the age of 20 she's went had two husbands and shot and killed one of them. Yes. And once divorced and now a widow at her own hand. Yes. Okay. And then she just goes back home and goes right back into her old lifestyle.
1: There in Memphis she hooks up again with her ex-husband. Halpin Cox.
0: Helping Cox, that's a great name.
1: He proposed for a second time, and Alma said yes. And it didn't take long for the old problems to emerge. Because, again, you got the scambler, you've got the sex worker. I mean, come on.
0: Well, they've already tried it once. It it blows my mind when people do this. And sometimes I guess it works out when you're together, then you separate, then you get back together, remarry again.
1: Well, see, here's my thing. Break up, but don't actually go through with the divorce, because why are you going to spend the money on the divorce and then turn around and get married again?
0: Well, there's that. You
1: know, it's like a waste of money.
0: There's that. But it's almost like you've already tried it once. It didn't work. More than likely, those same uh, personality conflicts or whatever is going to arise again. It always does.
1: But you're in love.
0: Well, I guess we do crazy things for love.
1: We do, right? Right. Between Cox's workaholic lifestyle and Alma's horny vagina, soon the marriage was doomed again. She was contemplating divorce when a twist of fate took Halpin Cox's life in an automobile accident.
0: Do you think that was listed in the um, reasons for the divorce? Her horny vagina? Yep. Okay.
1: I mean, I get it. Having a horny vagina, there's nothing wrong with it.
0: It can call, it can cause issues mm-hmm. in, in your relationship. Well,
1: especially if he's not like tending to it. You know what I mean?
0: You have to take care of it. You, you have gotta, to tend you to the f- vagina, farm it. You have to just caress it and whisper sweet nothings. You know, it turns out vaginas like music. You
1: have to get down there and prune it. You know, makes
0: makes them happy.
1: Spread some seeds around. Hydrate mm-hmm. it. All the stuff. Exactly. So in for a second time, Alma wasted very little time on mourning. She's not the mourning type Dylan. Her husband had left her unprovided for. She needed to earn a living, and there was only one may uh, only one way to make that bag fast.
0: Fast and she easy. She gotta
1: get that bag, Dylan. Soon enough, Alma was back on Vance Avenue. This time taking a job at a well established brothel. There, the petite, dark-haired 20-year-old became a favorite with Johns. She'd hold her position as one of the establishment's most sought-after courtesans for several years.
0: Okay, so she was a a lovely young girl,
1: right? Yeah.
0: Good at what she does, I'm going to assume. And here we are, so at 20, she's twice widowed, twice married, once divorced. Uh Uh-huh. And all this has happened before in a matter of a couple of years. Yes. Okay.
1: Okay. Now, eventually Alma was drinking, uh, which evolved into, a you know, an alcohol problem. She had a drunk problem. And it robbed her of good looks over time. Her earnings began to wane. Because in sex work, Dylan, from what I understand, the older you get, the harder you have to work and often for less money.
0: Well, I guess that makes sense.
1: After being kicked out of the brothel, she went to work at another body house. This one catering to a less discerning clientele. So basically, instead of five stars, this one had a one-star review on Yelp. It was like, I really wanted to like this podcast, but...
0: (laughs) I really wanted to like this whorehouse.
1: I really wanted to like her vagina, but... Exactly. Now, it was at the shady brothel that she meets a 50-year-old man named Michael McClavy. McClavy was twice Alma's age. He was not handsome by conventional standards. He was also partially deaf and somewhat visually impaired, causing him to wear a permanent squint on his face. He was nonetheless quite wealthy with a successful contracting business. And he was apparently besotted with Alma, offering to take her away from her, quote, life of degradation and to, quote, make her a lady. And Alma, of course, accepted.
0: So she's been whisked away to the castle once again.
1: Mike McClavy was, by all accounts, kind and generous. Not only did he take Alma off the streets, but he insisted that her mother should also live with them. Home was a comfortable two-story residence at 254 Avery Street, which was in a good neighborhood. There, Alma lived mainly a life of leisure. Her primary vice at the time was gambling. But even here, her husband had her covered. He regularly provided her with what you would call, Dylan, walking around money. Yeah, little pocket money. Yeah. I mean, he could afford it and he wanted her to be happy. But keeping Alma happy turned out to be expensive, even for a man as generous as Mike McClavy. Alma was by now addicted to card and craps games. This created financial problems between the couple. McLavy had to rein her in and put a cap on her allowance, but Alma was not having it. In fact, Alma threatened to return to the streets just to fund her gambling addiction.
0: So I thought drugs were going to get a hold of her, and it turns out it was the gambling.
1: It was the Cod Games, Dylan.
0: <laughs> the damn Cods. She
1: liked to roll the dice. Then after a period of reflection, she offered another solution— the house was too big for just the three of them. Why not take in a boarder? With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
0: Okay, so here's a solution. Just gamble less. Stop spending every dime I get, we uh, we have on uh, gambling.
1: On card games? Yeah, that'd
0: be the number one, that'd uh, be the best way to handle this on situation. On slot machines? Yeah, quit pulling that handle. I
1: can't help it. I go to the casino and I get a little crazy.
0: And stop playing the slots, too. But I
1: like the slots.
0: <sighs> okay.
1: <laughs> okay, so considering the alternative, McClavy agreed. They decided to rent the room out to a man named C.E. Miller, who was a former jockey. Like a horse jockey.
0: Oh, so this guy was a very small guy.
1: He is a little guy. Um, at 30 years of age, he was about 20 years younger than Mike McClavy and closer in age to Alma. He was also supposedly very handsome. It was perhaps inevitable that he and Alma would begin making eyes at each other, and soon they would be involved in a sordid affair.
0: So this isn't working out.
1: I feel like we should get a border.
0: No. No. We're not going to let some wayward jockey shack up in our living room? Like
1: a bodybuilder?
0: No, like, a bodybuilder. Like, like, a... like
1: Dylan, I found, this poor, I found this poor, unfortunate young man at the gym. He was bench pressing me. And
0: he, spent he needs all a place
1: of, to stay.
0: He spent all his monies on supplements.
1: <laughs> at the GNC. Can we invite him over?
0: The GNC has made him a poor broken mind. I just need to put him back together. I
1: just need to bring him to our house and let him sleep in our bed. No. On the nights when you're at work. I refuse. I'm going to stop with this weird accent that doesn't make any sense.
0: Yeah, I know. We apologize to anyone that might have been like.
1: McClevy was no fool, so he picked up on the vibes between his wife and the border and eventually orders Miller to leave the house.
0: So he's just running around squinting at everybody? Big
1: mistake. Huge. So, on the morning of December 20th, 1927, an ambulance was summoned to the McClavy residence. The paramedics found Mike McClavy shot to death on his bedroom floor, a bullet through his heart. The police were then called. Alma was distraught. She put on quite a show in front of detectives. Questions, she said that she'd been in the other room when she'd heard three shots. She had then rushed to the scene and found her husband dead on the floor with no one around. She said, quote, there was no one else there. I didn't see anyone.
0: So she doesn't have any idea what happened. All she knows is she heard three gunshots and found her husband dead on the floor.
1: Now, the police did not buy the story at all, especially when they learned that Alma had been acquitted of killing another one of her husbands in Little Rock. Then they found out about the boarder, C.E. Miller, who now appeared to be missing. Finally, they learned that Alma had recently given Miller a present, a thirty-eight revolver.
0: Huh. Oh.
1: With Alma still insisting that she did not know Willer, uh, Miller's whereabouts, the police backed off, and they didn't charge her. Instead, they placed her under surveillance and were soon rewarded when they followed her to the Memphis boarding house where Miller was hiding out. The pair were both arrested, placed on trial, and eventually convicted, Miller of second-degree murder and Alma as an accessory. Their sentences were identical, 15 years behind bars. Alma was 29 years old when she entered the state prison, and although her... World-weary looks suggested a woman closer to the age of 50. Still, she hadn't lost her feminine wiles and soon put them to work. Employed in a prison workroom where male and female inmates sometimes mingled, she managed to hook a man named William Thede, who was doing time for gunning down a 15-year-old boy during a grocery store robbery.
0: Damn. Alma hooked up with this guy? Yeah. Damn. She must have known how to work it.
1: As fate would have it, the release dates of this jailhouse Romeo and Juliet were just a couple of months apart. In 1933, the paroled killers received permission to marry. Prison time had given Alma the opportunity for reflection, the chance to determine a new path through life. She wanted away from the body houses and gambling dens of Memphis, away from old associates and those old temptations. With a small nest egg her mother had put away before Alma's incarceration, she was able to place a down payment on seven acres of land at Grant's Corners, which was on the outskirts of town. The property also had a three-room shanty, which would be home to Alma, her mother, and her new husband. Also living on the property were three children. Two of them, the offsprings of Halpin Cox, her first husband.
0: Three of her children?
1: No, they were his kids. Okay. Two and the third was an infant of around 22 months who Alma had somehow gained custody of after the child's unwed mother put it up for adoption. Alma's plan was to earn a living by raising pigs and chickens, but her new husband was less than enamored with the lifestyle and with the state of the living conditions on the farm. See, Alma kept a menagerie of pets, and she also allowed the livestock to wander freely through the house.
0: Oh, that nothing livens, freshens a place up like a pig in the living room, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, I've heard stories of this, and I just can't believe that it's true. But <clears throat> I, I know people who have witnessed, like hogs in living rooms,
0: chickens, goats. Yeah, and it probably was gross, right?
1: Yeah, I had a friend who was a paramedic, and she discussed going to multiple houses. And walking in, and there would be like goats in the den, you know. that would have some, like some chicken wire up or something, and chickens roaming around the house, <sighs> pigs just shitting freely.
0: Well, yeah. I'm just saying, you know, pigs are actually very clean animals if they're allowed to, you know, be in that those conditions. But so
1: you're saying you would live with a pig?
0: No, I'm not saying that because, um, but. These animals, chickens especially, and goats—they just look at you and use the bathroom, and they have no. I guess you can train them up. Someone's gonna be out there. I got a pet chicken that no can say the alphabet, you know, whatever. But they just poo and pee freely, constantly. Birds, especially, it would be gross. So gross. So very quickly.
1: I don't want to live in the house with animals. I barely want to live in the house with people, with my own family.
0: Rufus is enough.
1: You're enough. Okay.
0: But you make me wear diapers.
1: Ugh, somebody needs to make you wear a diaper.
0: <laughs> You're gross.
1: <laughs> uh, that's
0: not true. I don't have to wear diapers. I have full control of my bowels, folks.
1: <laughs> sort of.
0: Most of the time. Unless I drink a six pack of Voodoo Rangers.
1: And then he might piss himself. You never know. <laughs> Shoo loud. Okay, so I got all this livestock just like roaming through the house. By 1936, William Theed had had enough and filed for divorce. Unfortunately for Thede, his petition would have an unintended consequence. A local newspaper printed a small article about this um, dissolution of marriage and included a picture of him and Alma in its write-up. Now, that prompted a woman named Mrs. George Calhoun to contact the police and to point that the Theeds were a couple who had stolen linen and silver from her home. Oh, really? As a result, Alma and William were arrested, tried, and convicted. They each served a short sentence at the Shelby County Penal Farm. Then, William Thede hit the road. He'd later admit that he was terrified of his wife and that she'd once threatened to shoot him.
0: Well, she'd murdered, well, she caused the death of uh, two other husbands, Right. So he's got that in the back of his mind. And if she's outright saying, I'll shoot you like I did them, I guess he has every right to be kind of scared of her, right?
1: for her. She's just out here doing the Lord's work. So he later would admit that he was terrified of his wife and that she was no kind of housekeeper. He described their home as a pigsty. Literally. Yeah. So Alma's next run in with the law came when she served 90 days in a workhouse for stealing a cow. The sentence might have been longer, but Alma tearfully begged the judge for mercy, saying that she'd only taken the animal because she needed to get some milk for her babies. Oh. Now, that prompted an investigation, which ultimately resulted in the children being removed from her care and made wards of the state. This baby, now this is a quote, from Alice Saxby, a probate officer... Who said, quote, this baby was born at St. Joseph's Hospital in Memphis. The hospital has a record of the footprints. The mother of Forest City, Arkansas, a girl, gave the baby away because it was illegitimate. And Vance Avenue Alma got it. So even the probate officer in the court knows her as Vance Avenue Alma.
0: Oh, my gosh. So that's an official record? yeah as her listed as her name
1: so the babies the baby and the other children were removed from the home but it should be noted that you know even as the story goes on and we learn more about alma she did seem to have a soft spot in her heart for children and was said to often like take in kids feed them some of the other working girls that had children she would like take them in, take care of them she did seem to really have a thing for kids
0: well, it sounds like she's trying uh, the best way she knows how, but it, you know, with the animals in and out of the house and things like that, it's just unfavorable conditions for children. But it, it, there doesn't seem to, as of yet, be any reports of abuse or neglect to the children. It seems like she's trying hard as she can. Maybe she really did need milk for that baby, maybe and that's she, why she stole the cow.
1: Maybe she did.
0: Maybe she could just milk the cow and then left the cow in place.
1: The years that would follow would be hard, backbreaking ones for Alma. Life on the farm was a grind, a constant battle, and to keep her property out of the hands of the bank. Yet, in the midst of this drudgery, Alma still found time for romance. Really? I tell you, she is one of those women that seems like she can't not have a man. Right. Right?
0: I think everyone's known a man or a woman like that.
1: Well, it seems like Alma was this woman. In 1946, she married for a fifth time, tying the knot with Ed Gill, a 62-year-old mill worker. Gill moved into the shack with Alma and her mother and their menagerie of animals. He would spend the last three years of his life there. On the drizzling evening of January 2nd, 1948, a boatswain's mate named William Rhodes was walking along Peebles Avenue in Grant's Corners when he spotted a man lying in the middle of the road. He went to offer assistance, but realized right away that the man was dead. He then dragged the body out of the path of traffic and went for the sheriff. Rhodes had assumed that the man was a victim of like a hit and run, but Sheriff James Thompson quickly dispelled that notion. The man had a bullet hole in his head. Oh, no. Moreover, the sheriff recognized him as Ed Gill, and he told his deputies, Vance Avenue Alma's gone and shot herself another husband.
0: It's just common knowledge at this point, after all these years.
1: She's earned a reputation, Dylan. She has. Questioned by the sheriff, Alma insisted that she'd had nothing to do with Ed's death. According to her, Ed had been drinking heavily over the past few weeks and had come home drunk that night. The two of them had a squabble, and Ed had then left the house. That was the last time she had seen him. Sheriff Thompson then asked if she owned a gun, and Alma admitted that she did. When the sheriff let Alma's, uh, left her shack that evening, I'm sorry, he was carrying her thirty eight revolver as evidence. And guess what ballistics would prove, Dylan? Ooh, they had ballistics back then? It was indeed the weapon that had ended Ed Gill's life.
0: Now, wow! So they could tell that back then.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is like the what, nineteen forty-eight or so. Yeah, I mean, they can probably tell. Yeah. Okay.
0: <laughs> well, I guess ballistics may, maybe has been the you know, been around for quite well, a while. I mean,
1: I would just guess that they could probably look at a, a bullet hole and they know like that didn't come from some big ass fucking Tommy gun. Well, see, that's the bro. thing.
0: Or, or, or have they uh, honed in the fact that? This type of weapon, this caliber weapon likely caused the injury or have they? nailed it down with ballistic evidence that this very gun ended his life
1: well you know dylan that's a great question and you know i'm just going to bring up a point like if you participated in podcast research then you would know the story i was covering and you could have researched that information and shared it with us
0: well i just researched that and but they you did, did not know
1: but you didn't and then you ask these questions uh you pose all these questions for us you do very little to answer them yourself okay i'm just saying
0: that's what i'm here for
1: Faced with this evidence, Alma told a different story. She now claimed that Ed had pulled the gun on her during an argument in the cab of his truck. The two of them then struggled for the weapon, falling out of the vehicle in the process. As they hit the ground, the gun discharged, hitting Ed in the forehead and killing him. Alma had then driven the truck home, leaving the body where it lay. Unfortunately for Alma, this story just didn't make sense. Ed Gill, he was a big burly man who was at least a foot taller than Alma and outweighed her by over 100 pounds. Any struggle between them would have been one-sided, probably over in seconds.
0: Yeah, so here's he this great big mill worker probably worked hard all his life, super strong, and it's just unlikely that Alma would have this type of altercation and get the upper hand, right?
1: So, basically, it would be like if I was trying to fight you and get the upper hand. Is that what we're saying? Girl. Just like a foot taller than me. Don't do it. You outweigh me by like 100 pounds. I'm bringing it. I think I could take you down, though. I'm not scared of you.
0: Like, would you have to sneak up on me, or would you think you can just take me squared I up? i
1: just kick you in your soft shin, and you would whine and cry. Because if I barely bump it, you're like, Ew, you're such a little wine tit. So, i just kick you in your soft shin, and I would let you take you down.
0: Okay, so if the, if it's getting bad, I'm going to put shin guards on. Okay, and then I will approach you in a menacing fashion.
1: Okay, who are you supposed to be like Pe- Pele? <laughs> you <laughs> little shin guards. I got my shin guards on, bitch. What you gonna do now? Run up, fucker! <laughs> I'll kick you in your goddamn knee. I would okay. never
0: fight you, honey. I love you.
1: <sighs> I love you, but I do sit around thinking about what it would be like. You want to wanna fight to, me? To headbutt you. You want to headbutt me?
0: But when you headbutt me, you do it in my midsection like you're a goat or something.
1: Yeah. that's A ram. Well, I'm a Taurus. I'm a bull. Okay. I want to ram you with my head. I do. You
0: headbutted me on the way back from South Carolina today.
1: Well, you were making me feel like you needed to be headbutted. Okay.
0: Okay. It's so cute.
1: So, moreover, the passenger door, which Alma claimed to have fallen out of, was jammed and couldn't be opened. Ed's friends told police that he'd been complaining about the jammed door for months. Those same friends also revealed that Ed seldom consumed alcohol and drank only moderately when he did. With all of this evidence in hand, Sheriff Thompson arrested Alma and charged her with murder.
0: I don't think she can get out of this one.
1: Looking at a long prison term if convicted, Alma wisely decided to take the advice of her public defender and pled guilty to second-degree murder. Luckily for her, she had a fairly compassionate prosecutor assigned to the case. Touched by the miserable, poverty-stricken life she'd endured, he asked for a sentence of no longer than 10 years. Judge Francis Holmes, the same judge who'd presided over Alma's uh, theft case, was, uh, and this was the cow theft.
0: Where she tearfully <laughs> said she needed the cow for the milk for the yeah, baby. Yeah,
1: the livestock theft case. He was happy to oblige. Vance Avenue Alma would still have time for one more trip down the aisle after her release from prison.
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: Yeah, I mean, some of y'all out here single, and here's Alma.
0: Alma's had like 10 husbands. she
1: used to get like 10 husbands, exactly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it makes you wonder, doesn't it? In
1: 1960, she married a man named William Massey. Now, they later divorced, and Alma Thee died in 1970 at a Millington nursing home. She was 75 years old.
0: Damn, Alma. What? So, I mean, that's an interesting life she led.
1: All of those dead husbands.
0: All those dead husbands.
1: And she doesn't seem to have any problems with going to prison.
0: Nah, she, I she's... Mean, a, she
1: served, what, like half of her life in fucking prison?
0: She could do it standing on her head. A bid don't scare her. No, she's she's ready to go. So she knows how it works. As soon as she gets there, find you somewhere, get, you know... Meet the right people. You got to know people in the cafeteria so you can get some food. Um, you got to just go pick out the biggest, baddest person, take them out. And that way you take over the pod. Now you're the pod boss. I mean, these are this is how jail works. It is. Yeah.
1: I think Alma's a very interesting study because she didn't kill for money. Well, I guess it was the way she killed too. I mean, what we know from female murderers, they tend to be poisoners. Yeah, it's true. Right? Um, they don't tend to be very violent. And we have Alma here. She's shooting people. She don't give fuck.
0: No, there doesn't seem to be any life insurance or any big She's payday. She's not doing it for money. But it's like um, everything's okay until maybe they threaten her or push her to a certain point, And then she Eileen Warlow's on their ass. Or maybe she just held it like a threat over their head. You keep it up, I'll, I'll kill you too.
1: Yeah, it just seems like she didn't really have any... I mean, she didn't didn't have a fear of prison. No. She just kept on keeping on, right? Yup. But yet she wanted to have a man in her life. She obviously was looking for love.
0: In all the wrong places.
1: And when that didn't quite work out, she just killed him.
0: She's a Vance Street Alma.
1: Vance Avenue Alma.
0: Vance Avenue Alma. Damn, girl. Wow. Now, could you imagine sitting in a... A old folks home or something, you know, going there to volunteer or something, and you you get hooked up with Alma, and she starts telling you some of these stories.
1: Alma would be like my new best friend.
0: Oh, gosh, it would be amazing. I
1: need to know more about Alma. No one has written a book about Alma. And that's what I find also interesting is the story. I wish I had more information. A lot of this comes from old newspaper articles And, you know, a couple other, like, you know, people have kind of did little blogs and blurbs about Alma. Um, She said to haunt one of the local cemeteries in Memphis where she's buried.
0: Okay. That would not surprise me one bit.
1: Um, I guess her grave is kind of, you know, like a tourist attraction. Yeah. You know, because it's such a local legend. A lot of people like to go to, I think it's Elmwood Cemetery, visit Alma's grave.
0: I would go if I was in Memphis.
1: I know. If we ever go to Memphis, we'll have to go visit Alma's grave. But I do find Alma to be a, a pretty interesting study here.
0: Uh, definitely. I think it'd make a great movie. Right? Who could play Alma?
1: Oh, Alma. no.
0: Kathy Bates?
1: Maybe. Yeah. And she was quite a looker. But by the time she served that first jail sentence and got out, like she definitely...
0: Okay. Aged quite a bit. Well, yeah. That's rough, that's rough living, you know? And
1: there are very few pictures of Alma, but I do have, I think, two photos of her. So I will post those on Instagram. You can check them out. also have a little photo of the, the little shanty she lived in with her mama. Okay. And her husbands.
0: I got to check those out.
1: So I will post photos. Nillen, anything else you would like to add before we wrap up tonight's show?
0: No, I, I'm going to go read and, and, and look and find out more about Alma.
1: About the ballistics from the 1940s? Yeah, well, I'm going to
0: find out how how sound ballistic science was in the 1940s.
1: Well, if you would like to get more Mountain Murders, you can always support us at patreon.com slash mountainmurderspodcast. Your money helps to keep the lights on here at Mountain Murders. And helps us produce more content, plus you're going to get bonus episodes and ad-free podcast episodes there. You can always shoot us an email, mountainmurderspodcast at gmail.com. We are collecting more listener stories, putting together a listener stories episode. So if you want to be featured on that, hurry and get those emails in.
0: I can't wait. We have such great stories from the listeners.
1: We tend to get some good ones, Dylan. Do you have anything else you would like to add?
0: Nope, except that we love you all. Dylan loves you guys.